and welcome to another episode of Stories from Sydney. The podcast where every season is eight episodes long, except for this season. Yes, it's only four this season and we are on to our last one. Hey, five. Well, five. Excuse five. me, what contench? Yeah, well, you came up with three. You pulled through with that first yeah. long excerpt-ridden uh, episode. It was great. Well received, actually. Which I've had a lot, yeah, a lot of positive feedback about that. But we're despite ra- your misgivings. <laughs> yeah, but we're wrapping up the uh, the shorter season this time, and I think going forward we might stick with stick with the four or five episode ones. Well, um, leave that up for discussion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and two weeks ago, Jed was my last story for the season. Do you happen to remember what it was about? Yes, it was about Bungary, an Indigenous Australian man who circumnavigated our vast continent in the early 19th century with none other than Matthew Flinders, a man that is well known across the land, despite having achieved nothing that Bungary didn't also achieve. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I guess Flinders is probably more adept at the navigational uh, drawing of charts and I don't know whatever Almost you did certainly. to make, but, but perhaps not, not as good. Not as uh, not as good at being um, congenial. No, or getting along with uh, yeah indigenous people around the continent. So they they did a good job together, a good team. Yep. And this week, I didn't give you a clue because, quite frankly, I've had enough of your poor efforts in my clue interpretation. So I just told you what the episode would be about. So you just took it a step further and just didn't (laughs) even pretend it was a clue. I quite like my clue about the high-speed rail line. but uh, that was a great clue. Yeah. Oh, oh, you were were disappointed by my attempts to guess your clues. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I so didn't you can tell even us try all last what, time. Uh, this Fortnite's episode will be about. Yeah, this this episode, Jed, you've promised to tell us about some different plants, uh, native plants to the Sydney region, and their uses that they are put to uh, either by Aboriginal people or by the early colonists. And yeah, where we can see them today, I think all of these plants are still fairly prominent in the landscape. That's exactly right. I'm going to be talking about three common genuses of plants that you can find in and around Sydney Harbour. Uh, And yeah, what uses these plants have been put to, but not just early colonists, even more more recent people. Um, And what I'm hoping from this episode is that people who might not know too much about the plants of Port Jackson uh, will be able to recognise a couple of them and have some little anecdotes for their walking buddies when they're, you know, wandering around the Botanic Garden or one of our many lovely pieces of remnant bushland on the harbour. Yep, or even possibly in the median strip of a highway. Ah, foreshadowing. I like it. <laughs> I think so. I think one of these ones. You've told, told me a little bit about them. Uh, but before we jump into it, Jed, uh, I would like to acknowledge the indigenous custodians of the land upon which I'm recording, which is the Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation. And in my case, that's the Kootenai people of Interior BC. And I'd also like to extend that acknowledgement to the traditional custodians of the land, water and vegetation communities of Sydney Harbour, which is the Camaragal, Wanagal, Gadigal, Wallamedigal, Baramadigal and Borogagal peoples. By all accounts, these groups of people did an incredible job maintaining one of the world's great biodiversity hotspots, and I believe it's to our collective detriment that contemporary society has failed to recognise that for so long. Yeah, absolutely. And this will be a good episode for us to at least start to scratch the surface on learning a bit more about that. 
Yeah, so Alistair, you would know that my connection to the bush around Sydney Harbour goes back a few years now um, from when I worked in Bush Regen yes. uh, at many different places around the harbour and would send you photos and come back with various stories about the uh, places in Sydney that you simply had to get to. <laughs> yeah. yeah, some of them more or less impressive than others, but it was definitely a great place for you to learn about interesting, quirky local history and also, obviously, the, the local plants um, and animals of the areas all around the harbour. Yeah, it was definitely a mixture. We've got, there's, uh, on places like North Head, there's some really impressive, genuine remnant bushland. Um, but then I also worked on heavily degraded industrial sites like Cockatoo Island that for uh, for various reasons of of urban promotion, I suppose, they were determined to restore bushland. And restoring bushland from an industrial wasteland is really just planting a planting. garden bed and hoping for the best. <laughs> yeah, nice. I'm, su- I'm yeah. sure it does look better than it did before. Well, yeah, but it's not so fun to work there. <laughs> um, so the first the first species I'd like to... Well, I, I should say genus um, because there's some... With each of these plants, there's some variety of different species. I don't want to get too bogged down in the nitty-gritty yep. of plant biology because I don't know enough about it and I don't find it particularly interesting. <laughs> yep. I remember you once wisely told me that I should just stick to genuses when I was getting interested in identifying trees. And it's probably the best advice you've ever given me. It makes life much easier. You don't have to worry about <laughs> yeah. these nitty gritty details of all the different ones. You're just like, oh, yeah, yes. it's a pine tree. Yes, exactly. There's three different kinds of gum, uh, three different genuses of gum. And if you can, they're not that hard to identify, which is which. But once you get into the species, you you're in a Hundreds, great deal right? of trouble if you're with anyone who has more knowledge than you. you <laughs> the fact that you're faking it will quickly become apparent. Yeah, let's stick to the genuses. All right, I like it. So despite that, the first plant I'm going to talk about, we're actually going into the species. It's a very common plant called Lamandra longifolia. All right, I'm going to look these up so that I can see them. And I imagine we're going to put some photos up on social media for our listeners to be. also see. Yes. All right. So... Lamandra longifolia was first described into European botany records by a Frenchman named Jacques Labillier, perhaps, mm, okay. <laughs> who visited Sydney in 1792 right. while looking for the lost La Perouse expedition. Yeah, didn't find them, but did find uh, Lamandra longifolia. He did. And I think it's fair to say that the species was fairly prevalent at that point in time because its uses were well known to Indigenous people and it was collected by La Billiardaire um, in the first effort at cataloging fauna in Port Jackson. So okay, it was right. You didn't at have hand to go too far to find it. Yeah. Yes, wasn't looking under yes. rocks. It just it was there. But Banks hadn't collected it, so perhaps yeah. it wasn't in Kernel. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So, however wide the range of Lamandra longifolia might have been at the time, I think it's safe to say that it is nothing on how prevalent it is now. It's one of those rare species, and the, perhaps some of the uh, fauna species are more more notable, such as the white ibis. I was going to say, that I was have, exactly <laughs> going to say that, like the ibis. <laughs> yes, that have actually flourished since European settlement. Yep, designed for a, a mangrove, but by gosh, it's good in the dumpster bins all around the city. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the first common official common name, as per the Royal Botanic Garden, um, is spiny-headed matrush, but mm-hmm. I've only ever known it to be referred to as lamandra because it is the most common 
species of that genus by some margin. Okay. And if you're wondering what it looks like and you don't have a picture handy, it's a large, strappy-looking rush, and it produces a spiky seed head. Yeah, and when you say a rush, it looks like kind of very, very long bits of grass coming out of a little little bush out of the ground kind of thing, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I th- uh, so I'm looking at a picture of this now, Jed, and the most um, mm-hmm. distinctive part that I recognize about this plant is that spiky seed head, I think is what you said. Yes. And it has... Yeah. Very sharp uh, barbs coming out of it, but then also fluffy, tiny little flowers. Um, yeah. And th- those, those heads, I don't know what time of year it is exactly when they start to get all of those uh, clumps of uh, little flowers on it. But that's very distinctive of that plant, I think. Yeah. You know, I think there's an interesting kind of contemporary movement looking at um, native Australian plants that produce a seed head that can be used for making a flower because we know that um, Indigenous Australians have been making bread for what we think to be 30,000 years, which, if wow. that's the case, is the longest, um, the oldest bread makers in the world that we know of. Obviously, contemporary Western crops produce an enormous volume of flour per plant because, yeah. you know, we've been modifying them through our agricultural practice for 5,000 years or so. Yeah. And Australian native plants don't tend to do this, but yeah, the Lamandra seed head is a good example. You can see quite a lot of seed on it. Yeah. People still to this day will make bread out of Lamandra flour because yeah, you can, it's not unreasonable on a sort of cottage industry scale to go and harvest a bunch of seed, grind it and bake your loaf. Yeah. Wow. I've, I'm really keen to try that out. It seems almost doable. I don't, I've never actually tried to make my own flour, so I imagine the quantity of this seed you need to grind it down into flour is way more than I could ever imagine. But there is a lot of this just around on the streets of Sydney. Yeah, maybe once your kids are a little bit older, they can be your lamandra harvesting labor force. <laughs> Put some gloves on them so they don't get spiked and yeah. <laughs> send them off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but aside from the bread baking, um, another indigenous use of Lamandra longifoli we know of is using the straps in weaving. They okay. are used to make baskets, and you can find some photos of that online, and also could be made into eel traps and oh. also to produce a durable cord. Okay, nice. Yeah, because it's got the perfect uh, flat, kind of thick um blades that you could can see how that would work really well for weaving or making cords or anything like that yeah um and apparently they have an edible flower and a moist leaf base that can be chewed for hydration in desperate circumstances neither of which i've tried (laughs) well i would i'd hope that the uh that the flower is edible because otherwise if you're grinding it down and making bread out of it you're in a, a world of pain if it's not edible well, maybe the maybe the inflorescence is poisonous, but the seed is edible. Ah, uh, okay, I see. I see. I mean, that's not the case, but, <laughs> but it, theoretically, could be that could concern. Be, right? Okay, so you can eat it when it's in bloom, but also you can eat that dry, more dried up seed that is left you over. You can afterwards. eat it any old how. Yeah, nice. Good to know. But these days, Alistair, the prevalence of lamandra is nothing to do with its edibility, suitability for weaving. Or even its aesthetics. Okay, so why is it everywhere? Does it grow in really harsh conditions, poor soil and poor um, watering? Yes, exactly. It's extremely hardy 
and once it's planted it pretty much just takes care of itself and it will be plant mm. it'll be happy being planted into anything in the last you know a few decades especially the roads and maritime service or under its various different names has been particularly keen in urban planning and also you know the maritimes and the cities of sydney councils of the world in having native garden beds you know you build a new highway yeah okay. but it's fine because next to it you've got a one meter wide strip of native vegetation it's basically an environmental <laughs> project this is an environmental project yeah with with a road on the side exactly and so when you need to plant native species you're basically limited not only to the ones that can be propagated which is a tiny fraction of them but mm-hmm. also the ones that will cope with being on a one meter road verge <laughs> next to a six lane highway <laughs> into soil that was, you know, totally, absolutely destroyed for the project that only finished a couple of couple of weeks prior. Right. You know, you're going to have Macca's cups thrown at you. The whole, the whole gamut. <laughs> Lamandra longifolia is, is your one guy. Of, one of a handful of plants that can cope. Okay. That is, yeah. Okay. Impressive. So much so that one of the many common names I've heard for it is RTA grass. I'm sure that's a bush regen inside joke. Yeah. Yep. Um, and you can get fancy nursery varietals of Lamandra longifolia. So if you go to the um, nursery and look for it, you will find like finer featured leaf ones that are nice for your home garden. Okay. But the kind of harborside bushland one that I'm familiar with, which, you know, I assume is has some sort of provenance back to the original ones has a is probably what you're looking at in the photos has a thicker strap and is yep. a bit larger in size and also yeah as you mentioned a bit spiky so not great for the home garden yeah definitely those seed heads get get a bit spiky so just before we move on from uh, lamandra longifolia i was wondering uh-huh. you mentioned that some cottage industries might be baking bread from it do you know anywhere where one could try to source the bread if one didn't have children to harvest the seed for <laughs> for oneself Oh, I don't. Uh, Bruce Pascoe down in Malakuda is ex- of of dark emu fame. I mention him basically every other episode. Uh, he his current enterprise is hiring local indigenous people to plant and grow various native um, grain crops. Okay, with a long term plan, I believe, to develop something of a native bread industry but not sure how far along they've got. Yeah. I've only really come across that from the side, so any of that might not quite hold water. But, uh, yeah, yeah. look, get in touch with Bruce and see what he says. Or try it yourself. Or try it yourself. I'm sure that the RMS do... Well, I know they spray uh, Roundup and the rest of it because I've done it. So, yeah, you're probably not going to have organic um, bread. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a shame. Don't like to hear that, but oh well, I guess your bread's probably not organic anyway. The one that you buy from the store. No, and I mean you've got to you've got to maintain that road verge somehow. Otherwise, I'll just get taken over by like dandelions and other weeds, and then it's not a native garden bed anymore. <laughs> Look at this one's Roundup and Lamandra, yeah, the native yes, combination. Yeah. Yep, that's that's bush regen in Sydney. Uh, no, it's not quite that bleak, but that's definitely a part of it. <laughs> All right. Uh, what have you got for us next, then? Yeah. Plant number two, Alistair, you've you've already alluded to in our in our in our pre-episode conversation is xanthorrhea. Okay, let me quickly look it up so I can have a nice picture. 
How do you spell AKA sanatoria? AKA grass trees. Yes, I probably should spell it. It's it's X A N T H O R R H O E A. Wow. Which is surely not what you are going to guess. <laughs> All right, got a couple of species here, but I'll yeah. All right, I can see it. Oh yeah, classic Sydney plant. Uh-huh. It's actually Xanthoria is actually a close relative of Lamandra. Uh, until quite recently being part of the same plant family. And it's a genus that's endemic to Australia and made up of 28 different species, four of which exist in Sydney. And they're all fairly similar in appearance, which is why I'm just going to treat this one as a broad genus. Yeah. So for those who don't know, Xanthoria is a grass tree. Um, they're a very particular looking type of plant, not uncommon across a lot of Australia, but also not something you just bump into every day. How would you describe them, Alistair? Yeah, good question. They look a little bit, so they're stumpy little shrubs, but they have sometimes have a bit of a, a base or trunk to them that looks a tiny bit like a miniature, miniature uh, palm tree. And then on top, they have a big fuzzy bush of grassiness, like a, a tiny little grass tree. And then sometimes an enormous uh, wooden looking rod coming out the top. Yeah, so they're actually neither grass nor tree, um, but the biological definition of those two words, I don't know. I just know that it doesn't meet them. And the trunk thing you described is actually composed of tightly packed leaves, like the base of old leaves that have fallen off. Mm -hmm. So as the plant grows, the the current leaves drop off and new ones shoot. And so over time, it's just getting higher and higher up. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And so what's interesting about this is that you can date them extremely easily. They're also really resistant to fire. So uh -huh. what's fascinating about Xanthoria as well, there's so many things, but one of the things I love about them is that they're actually in many places in Australia, they're our oldest plant in a particular ecological community. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how sometimes the oldest plant doesn't look very impressive. You know, you're looking around the landscape, you see these huge trees and you think those are really impressive. And then someone points at some scraggly little thing in the corner and says that one's, you know, like 10,000 years old. Or the, the really old plant often is the not as impressive looking one. Yeah. So some species of Xanthoria grow as slowly as two and a half centimeters per year and they can get, you know, meters above above ground. Um and so the the oldest surviving xanthorias that we know of, are, we think are up to 600 years old, oh, which, cool. as you say, when we consider that a lot of our oldest trees were logged in the last 200 years, is yeah. remarkably old. Yeah, yeah. So if you see a tall a tall xanthoria, then and thick at the base, I imagine, uh, that would be a very old plant. Yeah, and usually blackened because they've been burnt over time. Mm -hmm. Now that you mention that, I feel like I have seen that. I can't pinpoint where or when, but yeah, it sounds familiar. Uh, North Head's full of them, especially since they do controlled burns there. So it's they get burned fairly regularly. Um, the name Xantheria is actually Greek, mm -hmm. and it means yellow flow, which refers to the resin that forms at the base of the leaves, which is what the plants are most famous for. Okay, fascinating. Right, so this is like flowing resin or gum or coming out when you snap a leaf off or something like that? Yeah. So before we get to the resin, though, in terms of indigenous use, they're a super important species, well, genus. Um, as you mentioned, that tall uh, seed head rod that sticks out is basically like an all-in-one spear shop. 
So mm-hmm. you go to a Xanthoria, right? If you can remove that large seed head stem, you've basically got a spear. Yeah. And the resin that the plant produces is like a glue. So you mm-hmm. can glue your sharpened stone tip onto it. Mm-hmm. And you've got a, like a fully complete ready to go spear. Perfect spear. Ready to... Yeah. Yes. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And because those rods are also immaculately straight, right? They're very, they would make a great spear. Yeah. They're, I mean, there's often six foot or longer and yeah, extremely straight. Uh, very distinctive when the plant's in seed. Um, and those stems can also be dried and used as a friction-based fire starter. Oh, and cool. the flower on top of the stem can be soaked in water to create a sweet drink that can be fermented. Ah, huh. oh, we got to try all of these. So things we might have been onto the wrong track, making wanting to make um, native hop bush beer when yeah. we should be fermenting xanthria flour. Yeah. I'm definitely into that. The other thing that I, while I was reading that I was learning about um, indigenous drinks made by soaking flowers in water, um, that seems to be quite a common practice around Sydney Harbour. But when I was reading about Bungary, mm. they would drink drinks like that. I mean, definitely we do know of lots of different plant species that were used in this way. I guess you could use any flower. Really, yeah, because it's just poisonous ones <laughs> that may or may not exist. <laughs> Yeah, we don't. You and I, Jed, don't know much about that, but I imagine the indigenous people did. Yeah, because you get yeah. the sweet um, nectar off it, right? And it would make the drink taste floral and sweet and delicious. Yeah, and you could ferment it to make it, you know, a bit more, a bit more full-bodied and mildly alcoholic. Probably not yeah. super duper because the sugar content would be pretty low. Yeah, I imagine it would be low alcohol, Something but it would taste good. Kombucha sort of vibes. I'm thinking maybe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I imagine. Yeah, cool. We should try that out. Put it on the list. We can have it with our bread. Yes. When the British arrived, they were quick to clue on to the usefulness of Xanthoria resin. And so in true coloniser style, rather than simply collecting the resin from the base of live trees, they realised you could collect much more resin in the short term Mm. by destroying the plants on an industrial scale to get at their precious resin reserves. Great. And then cart them back. And then after a few years, complain about the fact there's no more of those trees left around. (laughs) Uh, 19th century uses of resin included in medicine, uh, glue, varnish, burning as incense, protective coating on metal surfaces and in the production processes of wine and soap. Wow. Okay. So really broadly used across across quite a few industrial industries then. Yeah, and it kicks off in the 1880s when the resin of xanthoria became of commercial and scientific interest all the way over in the United States of America. Okay, yeah, wow, I wasn't expecting that date either. So you're saying that these uses aren't kind of, you know, 1795 when they still don't have very much and they're lacking in resources. They don't want to send them, get them sent all the way from England. They kind of find this thing that will do quite well as sticky sticking things together this is much later when it becomes kind of a globally interesting resource for industrial purposes yeah it's one of those products or plants that produces a product that sort of before just before we got to the mid mid 20th century and we could basically you Mm. know synthesize anything from um from oil products or whatever yeah there was this period where um all sorts of unique products and plant materials from around the world were getting 
carted here and there. And this was definitely one of those. Yeah. Things really took off in the 20th century with the Columbia Graphophone Company, which is okay. the precursor to Columbia Records. Mm-hmm. Making, patenting. Yeah. They patented a, quote, plastic composition of matter having a basis of cellulose ester for gramophone records that included xantheria resin. Wow. So xantheria resin was used in old vinyl records, though this would be before vinyl, sorry, pre-vinyl records. Yeah, no, that would be, well, yeah, exactly, yeah. They called them Xantheria records, probably. Not. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, that was in the early 20th century. And then in 1924, we have a short article published in the Adelaide Saturday Journal that said Xantheria resin was being used to make pyric acid that was being used to manufacture explosives. Hmm. And the vast stands of the plant on Kangaroo Island were completely destroyed to produce the acid that was exported to Germany pre-World War One. Oh. <laughs> but they regretted that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a funny little connection. Yeah. Wow. Like, I had no idea about this. I don't think you've told or even mentioned this to me before or I wasn't paying attention. No, I was saving this is completely it. Saving it, for the, saving it for the podcast. Can't give yeah. away all my secrets. <laughs> yeah, cool. And the reason I'm sort of jumping around a bit here is because of just what I could find from different sources. Like I couldn't, I didn't find something that was just like, here's every place that's ever used Xantharia. It was sort of piecing it together a bit. But in 1928, it was estimated that the export trade alone was worth 25,000 pounds, which is $2 million in today's money. So given the relatively small size of Australia's economy at the time, it was not insignificant. Yeah, yeah. Now this is... Fascinating. I had no idea. It makes it even more impressive that there are some old ones on George's head that managed to survive this onslaught. (laughs) And the story comes full circle because the Wreck Bay Aboriginal Community Council, which is in Jarvis Bay, Mm. commercially harvests xantheria resin as a furniture lacquer. Yeah, wow. To this day. To this day. Yeah, Yeah. it's a a recent commercial (gasps) venture. Right, okay. Yeah, kind of... uh, and did you say it was an indigenous group that, that runs that venture? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Rec Bay Aboriginal Community Council. Yeah, cool. Okay, nice. Fascinating. I had no idea. And the, the yeah, this is a really significant plant for with many, many uses. So aside from the above, we have a couple of other traditional uses included eating the roots and nectar-filled flower stem, heating the mm-hmm. resin to create a heat-sensitive waterproof reusable glue that was useful for repairing boats and the like yeah wow and one more obscure use of xantheria alistair that i think you might like Mm -hmm. is that you could actually chop them down and extract a sort of wood from the trunk of old leaf stems Uh apparently it is cracks easily and is very difficult to work with (laughs) and an entire large stem often only turns up a small piece of the wood all right (laughs) probably the worst use of this plant (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, entirely destructive with very little benefit. <laughs> yeah, but think how unique it would be having a having. Yeah. A, you could be like the Norfolk. I know xantheria, yeah. an entire boat made out of it. Yeah, or you could sail on Norfolk with a, a small spoon made of xantheria. Really live the niche wood dream. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Any questions on xantheria before we move on to plant number three? 
Uh, no, I don't think so. That uh, that is fascinating. That I've, it would take me a while to process all of that new information. But yeah, that's great. I'll I'll have a lot more respect for this plant than I ever did before, and a lot more knowledge. And I'll definitely keep my eye out for really tall old ones now that I didn't didn't realize just how old they were. Yeah, and I should add that as I mentioned, there's 28 different species of xanthoria in Australia, and they all grow at different speeds. So. It's not right. like you can get out a tape measure and determine the age. I won't be doing that. But certainly if you're if you're in an area that has some xanthoreas, um, the taller ones are going to be much older. And, um, and yeah, they come back really well from fire. So they're, they're a great plant. And, um, you know, for, for an amateur plant identifier such as myself, they're one of the ones that makes it really easy because they mm. are like, like once you, once you know them, they are glaringly obvious. They are. And they have a fancy <laughs> Greek name. They're the perfect combo. Yes. <laughs> easy to identify. Impress people with the X and the double RH. Okay. Our third and final plant for today, Alistair, is a plant called Tetragonia tetragonoides. Oh, that is a mouthful. And I don't know what that is, actually. The first two, I had an inkling that I knew what they were. But how, okay, say that again. Tetragonia tetragonoides. Okay, okay. Uh-huh. But it goes I by the exactly common name. I exactly what this is. <laughs> it goes, goes by the common name Warrigal Greens. Yeah. Or kind of a native spinach, right? Yeah, it's also called New Zealand spinach, I think. Mm-hmm. Um. It's compared to the two species we've already spoke about, has a much wider range, including Eastern Australia, New Zealand, Japan, China, and Polynesia. Mm-hmm. And since the 19th century, it's been naturalized in South America, Africa, and Europe. Naturalized being where a plant is introduced to a new environment and sort of becomes a stable part of that ecosystem. So it neither withers and dies, nor takes over and becomes super invasive and pushes everything else out. It just sort of finds its own niche and occupies it. Minds its business. Yeah, okay, so to it's now extent. all over the world. It's basically got every continent under its thumb. Yeah, and in Sydney we call it Warrigal Greens, uh, Warrigal being a Darug word for wild and greens in the sense that it is eaten in lieu of where one might have spinach or collard mm-hmm. greens or mustard greens or any other kind of greens you might be inclined to eat. Yes, which is... I, I imagine you might get to this, or I, I assume very, very relevant when you have problems with scurvy and things like that and you need something healthy and green to eat. Yes, hugely. So its popularity as a food stuff is actually the reason for its prolific spread. Mm-hmm. It was sold in the 19th century around the world as a garden plant called Botany Bay Greens. Ooh, I like it. Much better than New Zealand spinach. Got to claim the name. <laughs> And to this day, it's a still it's a really popular contemporary bush tucker food. So, it's you know a lot of, a lot of places around Greater Sydney where you would camp or find a campground, you will also find warrigal greens. So it, it doesn't take a huge amount of imagination to pull them out and add them to your meal. Yeah, yeah, and they can grow especially by the I know by the coast in quite salty environments. Yeah, yeah, they they like brackish or salty water. Um, mm-hmm. And my one experience of eating it was extremely salty meal because we also decided to use the brackish water to cook our noodles and added the Warrigal greens in. Uh, It was a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I'd recommend the brackish water, but I have eaten Warrigal greens as well. I cooked them at home. 
um, after just picking them on a walk near our house. And they were, I thought they were quite delicious, actually. They have a nice texture. They're, they're kind of a bit crunchier than spinach. Yeah, and they produce oxalates during daylight hours. What that means is basically that they, they like have a mild hallucinogenic effect mm. if you eat them. Um, but only if you harvest them during daylight hours. Fascinating. So if you harvest them at night... You're okay. Um, then it, they don't have that the thing in them that makes them mildly hallucinogenic. And you can rub them between your fingers to remove the small hairs that grow on them. Mm-hmm. And then you can eat them. Or, as you said, you can blanch them in water. Yeah, that's what I did. And if you harvest them in the daytime, if you blanch them for a few minutes, that also removes the oxalates. Yeah, okay. I think that's the route that I went down. I wasn't aware of the hallucinogenic part, but I I did know that it's not a good idea to eat them raw if you just pick them. Yeah, and if you're looking to get the hallucinogenic part, I would suggest <laughs> making like a pesto or something because then you can ingest a much larger quantity of it. I think to get like enough of it, you prob- probably have to eat quite, eat quite a, a lot. lot. <laughs> yeah. Do you, oh yeah, okay. I'm not sure we should be uh, advising on hallucinogenic uh, local plants, but do you, do you have any? Is this widely spread knowledge about how safe and how much of this you can consume? Look, I just don't think that there's that many people that are interested in eating Warrigal Green that aren't like super duper plant nerds, and mm-hmm. then they know exactly like what, what it doing. can and can't do, and you know the ins and outs of it. I just yeah. don't think there's that many people casually harvesting Warrigal Greens and being caught out by <laughs> its mild hallucinogenic property, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair point. Now, I don't have any records that it was it featured wildly in Aboriginal cooking, which is absolutely not to say that it didn't. In fact, I think it would mm-hmm. be safe to say that it did, but I don't have any records about it. Mm-hmm. But what I do have is an account of the first Europeans to enjoy it in Australia. Mm-hmm. And that is none other than Cook and Banks in May oh, wow, 1770. Okay. So straight away. Straight away, first thing. Yeah. So they pulled into a bay that cooked na- Cook named Stingray Harbour, owing to the presence of a large yes. fever of giant stingrays. As, as that's the collective noun, is it? I believe so, yes. Very nice. <laughs> um, yes, I, I know about this uh, Stingray Bay because I believe in the in Banks's notebook, he, he names it Stingray Bay and then he actually literally crosses it out and writes Botany Bay above it. So it, it was yeah. that close to being called Stingray Bay. Yes. So, uh, yeah, it's because... So Banks calls it Stingray Bay, but then Cook... Uh, renames it in the in honor of Banks because he was so enthusiastic about the site, and so he renamed mm-hmm. it Botany Bay. There you go. But Banks continued to use the original name of Stingray Harbor in his journal. Yeah, okay. Perhaps because he thought it was a bit, you know, ostentatious to start calling a Botany Bay, <laughs> or maybe he just didn't like it. <laughs> it was yeah. like, damn, One I shouldn't have been so enthusiastic. Stingray Harbor was really good. <laughs> He's probably thinking. Mate, you could just call it Banks Bay. It doesn't yeah, have to be yeah. named after my hobby. <laughs> no one's going to remember who the botanist was. You we didn't call name it, Banks it Captain Bay. Town, did it? We call it Cook Town. <laughs> um, yes, so this famous meal in May 1770, the crew hauled two giant stingrays, mm-hmm. which weighed 250 kilograms aboard what? the boat. Yes. Oh, wow. They weren't... Yeah, well, they weren't messing around when they said giant stingrays, were they? That yeah. is huge. 
eat yet yeah, two, two stingrays weighing 250 kilograms and they paired it with the delightful side of Warrigal greens. <laughs> How many people did they feed with 250 kilograms of Well, ray? we could do some calcs because I do have written here that the, that uh, each man was given five pounds of stingray. <laughs> yeah, okay. So that's two and a half kilos, right? That is a lot of stingray yeah. to eat. Yeah, wow. <laughs> Which led to many of the crew falling ill. <laughs> Too much stingray. <laughs> or was and it the bang- Warrigal greens that hadn't been prepared correctly? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> You'll never know. A bit of investigative history there. I like it. Um, and this is where Banks also noted that the indigenous people didn't want to partake in the eating of either the stingray or the greens. Mm-hmm. And so he he thought perhaps, well, I don't know what he thought. Let's that, leave that. So That would be quite worrying to me if I were a person who didn't know what I was doing in a foreign land and I <laughs> made myself a delicious and enormous meal of 250 kilograms of <laughs> ray and greens and then the local people were like, ah, oh, no, nah, nah, I'm not interested. You can have that yourself. Yeah, well, I guess they'd gotten that far. I mean, the alternative is eating those awful biscuits and right rotting mm. beer, you know. Rotting, yeah, yeah, rotting well, meat, not rotting, dried meat from... Just, all their food sounded vile. Yeah. yeah, I'd rather go with the fresh stingray. Also, what's the chance of dying on this voyage? Like, it's huge. So <laughs> yeah. in, live live a little man. <laughs> live Gorge it up. yourself on the stingray at Warrigal Greens. <laughs> Uh, but we, we, in hindsight, found out that Banks was onto something here because for many of, pe- many of the aura, eating Stingray was taboo. Yes. And we think that that long-held relationship probably, can, well, almost certainly contributed to the, the docility of the Stingray, which made them relatively easy to catch. Yes. They just sort of swarmed mm-hmm. around the boat and they, the Europeans just pulled them out, which also then led to their almost immediate local extinction after settlement. Yeah, okay. I, I did want to ask about that, but that makes perfect sense because that is the striking thing about Banks's account, I believe. The, f- the first time that he is in Stingray Harbour or Botany Bay is how many stingrays there are. And yet that's not what comes to mind now when you think of that water body. Uh, yeah, and that's fascinating. And we had the story from Bungaree uh, in our last episode, not eating ray either. So it was obviously yeah, quite a prominent uh, practice, yeah. spread, possibly even up the coast a little further. And yeah, look, by the by the end of Bungary's life, probably much, much sooner than that, the stingrays mm-hmm. were gone. Yeah. Okay. Like well. it's not just we it's not just us today, you know, us modern people being like, Oh yeah. lament the change. It was like boom. British settled, yeah. stingray's gone. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And I I use the word taboo to describe the uh your relationship mm-hmm. to stingray consumption. Mm-hmm. And as a totally irrelevant aside, the word taboo was actually introduced into English by Cook after his visit to Tonga on a later okay. voyage. Fascinating. There you go. That's a nice connection between the two. And so the last thing I will say about Warrigal Greens or Tetragonia tetragonoides, as it mm. is most properly known, is that Banks was so enthusiastic about what he called wild spinach Mm-hmm. that he argued in favor of a colony at Botany Bay because of its presence. Oh, wow. And brought, yeah, and brought the first sample of the plant back to England where it was planted in the Kew Gardens upon his return. Huh, wow. So in some ways, we have Tetragonia tetragonoides or Warrigal Greens to thank for uh, Sydney being where it is. Yeah, yeah. Actually quite prominently 
featured in the list of reasons to make that specific spot on the coast the place to settle. That's fascinating. Because you also then have all of the, the, the first fleet and the people involved in it cursing Banks's name when they arrive at Botany Bay and find it a not particularly inhabitable part of the coastline. <laughs> Teeming with, teeming with stingrays and wild spinach. <laughs> what more do you want? Well, he's such a, a, fresh he's water such a high society nice. guy, like <laughs> just rocking up being like, oh, this is del- a delight. <laughs> and then the, you know, pragmatic convict types arrive. I'm like, what? Like, it's just yeah. sand and there's no water. <laughs> Eat your stingray. <laughs> Enjoy it while you still can. Yeah. The settlement won't last more than the sti- longer than the couple of years that it takes to eat all the stingrays and then you'll figure it out from there. Yes, indeed. So, Alistair, that is my my short anecdotes about three wonderful plants uh that you can find right here in Sydney. Yeah, nice. They're they're all the kind of more modest, smaller, maybe overlooked plants that are around the landscape. But I like that they have such significant uh, histories and importance in yeah the story of Sydney. Yeah, and I actually, I mean, obviously wrote this back in 2021, so I'd completely forgotten that I had structured it so that we'd find out at the end that Warrigal Greens are the whole reason there are any stories from Sydney. I mean, that's maybe a slight... Uh, but it's not that far off but... in a way. I like, I like it. The narrative arc is great, Jed. Yeah, thank you. Um, and I think that I might have achieved the uh, unachievable by bringing in an episode in under forty minutes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> let's let's not uh, waste any more time because if we can wrap this up, then you might actually do that. <laughs> Which was our initial goal for every episode. <laughs> yes. <laughs> optimistic if nothing else yeah (laughs) awesome well thank you jed that was one of my favorite episodes so far it was fascinating great lot of new facts and i i love learning about plants uh, and animals in in the area so i really enjoyed that i'm looking forward to maybe some more episodes that are short and punchy like this in our future and i really enjoyed doing this season on kind of aboriginal themes um around sydney it was uh, really eye-opening for me i learned a lot and yeah thank you for for another fun and exciting season glad you liked it um definitely a bit different and yeah i think we could probably do some more in this style i think uh, we can experiment with different styles every time i feel like the the new thing turns out to be a success (laughs) yeah so yeah thank you for your thematic suggestions for the season I really enjoyed talking about Jarabin and I'm so ready to hit it up with you again. And yeah, yeah, just sticking into the indigenous history of Sydney. I think that for reasons we've discussed across the last few episodes, it's really easy to get into a headspace of history started in 1788 because that's when we have, you know, what we consider to be like historical, formal historical sources available to us. So Sometimes getting these other indigenous stories out is a bit trickier. There's more um, complexity to navigate, more uncertainty. But I feel like, especially the stories about Colby and Maria Locke and also about Bungary last fortnight, these people that straddled um, indigenous slash colonial society in the very first years, for Mm. me, their lives are... Even though we, we have to sort of piece it together, their lives are super illuminating about the tension within Australia. 
of where our indigenous sense of identity sits. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's been it's been really interesting for me and hopefully for everyone else too. Yeah, absolutely. We're gonna regroup as we always do, uh, figure out what we'll do for our next season, and hopefully, in not too long, we'll have some more news on what we'll be doing next. Nice and vague. I like it. If anyone wants to get in touch with us, you can follow us on social media. Although I will say that our social media pages are usually a bit quiet in the off season. Um, we're at Stories from Sydney on Instagram and Facebook. And if you want to get in touch with us, please don't hesitate to reach us at storiesfromsydney at gmail.com. Awesome. Uh, we'll see you next time for another story from Sydney. Thank <laughs> you.